0: Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, "...living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body." but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner?
1: We know that there is persecution around for Christians today, uh, but the reality is that there's been persecution of Christians really ever since the church has been in existence. Uh, The Jewish religious leaders were persecuting Christians right from the very beginning of the church, quite literally right from day one. They had somewhat limited powers, but they still sought to crush the church, Uh, and we can read about that in those early chapters of Acts. Uh, institutionalised persecution of the church, well, it probably began around about the same time that Peter wrote this letter, about the mid-60s. 64 AD was a significant year. It was a significant year because there was a major fire in Rome in July of that year, it was widely held that Nero, the emperor, was the one who'd actually lit the fire. He was a man who was known to be just a little bit more than loopy, but he also had a plan to clear some land so that he could engage in an extraordinary building project. But he placed the blame for the fire on the Christians, and this was the, fir- this was the beginning of institutionalised persecution of religion. Marcus Claudius Tacitus was a Roman historian, uh, and this is how he described the persecution of Christians in Rome at the time of Nero. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who confessed, that is, who confessed to be Christians. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of arson as of hatred of the human race. Mockery of every sort was added to their death. They were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses. They were doomed to the flames. They served to illuminate the night when daylight failed. The legend has it that Nero actually burnt people on on stakes in his gardens to provide light for the festivities that he was uh, engaging in. This is the world that Peter's writing to. The Christians that he's writing to, they know what suffering looks like because they're seeing it happening around them. So what Peter wants to say in this passage is is really a couple of things. First of all, he wants to explain why it is that they might expect that suffering will come their way. One of the main reasons that Peter gives for expecting that suffering might come your way as a Christian is that Christians don't fit in. Often people dislike what they don't understand, they dislike what doesn't fit in. That happens all around our world in a whole variety of different ways. But did you notice what Tacitus said? That it wasn't for the crime of arson that they were convicted, but for hatred of the human race. It's extraordinary, isn't it? How could you think that Christians hated the human race. But it kind of makes sense of some other things that Peter said in this letter, doesn't it? I mean, uh, we saw last week that he was insisting that we need to make sure that we are good citizens, that we're respectful of the government. We need to make sure that we're good employers, respectful of our bosses. We need to make sure that we're good husbands and wives, that we're seeking to strengthen the community. I would imagine that Peter's saying all of those things Because Christians are considered to be those who hate the human race. Simply because they don't fit in. Peter stressed it all the way through, but look at the beginning of chapter 4, the passage that we had read for us. If you've got your Bible open there at 1 Peter 3 and 4, that would be great. But chapter 4 starts with these words. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin as a result he does not live the rest of his life sorry the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires but rather for the will of god if you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do living in debauchery lust drunkenness orgies carousing and detestable idolatry they think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you People might think it's strange if you're not jumping in and doing the same things that they're doing. But if you're a Christian, there's a reason for that, isn't there? Because you have different priorities now. You, you understand your place in this world and you understand that there is a God who rules over all things. That you live to do his will, to please him. And if you don't do the things that others are doing, you may not fit in. You may be thought of as being a little strange. That's probably where Christians in this country, that's probably where our suffering or our persecution will really end, just that people are going to think you're a bit weird that you're not doing the same things as them. But sadly, that's not where it ends for many others around the world. Peter also goes on to make another important point. He reminds them that if they are experiencing hardship, they need to remember that it came to Jesus first. Jump down to verse 12 of chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. Jesus said much the same thing to his disciples, didn't he? If the world hates you, Jesus said, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Jesus suffered. Why should we think that it would be any different for those who are serious about following Jesus? Now, don't misunderstand what Peter's saying to us sitting here in this church today. He's writing to a group of people who are already facing hardship because of their faith. We live in a country where there is little or almost no hardship or suffering because of our faith. Peter's not saying, go out and look for a little bit of suffering or see if you can make your life a bit tougher. That's not what he's suggesting for us at all. But if we live in a country where there is very little suffering because of our faith in Jesus, surely that should mean that we're actually more committed to trusting Jesus, more committed to living out our faith in a public way, because we're not going to experience any suffering or or hardship because of it. We should be more prepared to live out our faith, more prepared to talk to others about what it is that we believe. The other thing that Peter wants to address in this passage is not just that we should expect suffering, but he wants to talk about how we should handle suffering. How should we deal with it? Should we seek to avoid it? Should we go looking for it? Well, he's got a couple of things that he wants to say. In the first one, chapter, chapter 4, verse 8. I think this is quite remarkable. In, in the middle of a very long section of talking about suffering and hardship, and, and remember... This is at the time of Nero when when things were really tough. This is what he says. Verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gifts he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks... He should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Peter's already said how important it is for us to love each other as Christians. And here he stresses it again. The Christian life is not always going to be easy. But one of the things that will make it easier is knowing that you have a group of people who will be there to help you when things get tough. Knowing that there's a bunch of people who are on your side who are there to support you and encourage you in what you believe. It's important to know that there is a group of people who are looking out for you, who have your interests at heart. And that ought to be this group here. Peter says that we are to love each other deeply, to have a genuine love for each other. We're to do things that will build each other up. We're to look out for each other. It's a great expression there, isn't it, in verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. If we're loving each other, then a whole lot of our shortcomings and our faults are covered over by our love. I think that's what the verse is saying. So if you're working at genuinely loving each other, the fact that you're a miserable, critical person, well, people will be more willing to overlook that because they know that you are genuinely loving them. Peter doesn't leave us guessing about how it is that we ought to love each other. He gives us those very practical examples, doesn't he, in verses 9, 10 and 11. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gifts he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Now remember that when you're on morning tea this morning and you think it's all finished and you've tidied everything up and someone comes over with four more dirty coffee cups. Okay, no grumbling. Use the gifts and the abilities that you have to serve others. It's interesting, isn't it? Very often people talk about spiritual gifts as though it's something to reinforce me and to build me up. No, it's not. The gifts that you have have been given for the benefit of everybody else in this room, not for your benefit. So you're to use them for the benefit of everybody else in this room, not for your benefit. And speak as though you're speaking the very words of God. Now that's not encouraging you to just keep your mouth closed because I read that verse and I think maybe I just shouldn't say anything. But it's encouraging you to think carefully about what it is that you are saying to make sure that you are seeking to build up and encourage other people with the words that come out of your mouth. But here's the most surprising thing that Peter says in this passage. I think the natural tendency for people who are being given a hard time because of their faith would be to try and take a low profile I kind of think that those Christians who are in those countries where they're suffering because of their faith, wouldn't you just want to not talk about it anymore or or hide away? Well, this is what Peter says. Go back to chapter 3, verse 14, first of all. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And then he says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. And then he takes it one step further. Peter says that it's not just a matter of not fearing what they fear. You should actually be confident about the faith that you have. Verse 15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Make him the priority in your life. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's extraordinary, isn't it? To a group of people who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus, he doesn't say, just do it all on the quiet so no one notices. He actually says, be ready to tell people about the hope that you have. Don't fear what they fear. Be ready to tell people about your faith in Jesus and why it makes a difference to your life. But it's not just advice for Peter and his original readers. It's advice for us, isn't it? I mean, we need to be ready to care for each other. Have a little look around who's here this morning. Go on, do it now. Look around. Have a look. Check out. Not Not a very attractive lot, are they? Now, what I want you to do is I want you to exclude the people who you would actually count as your friends, people who you would regularly socialise with, people who you've known for quite some time, and you would say are your friends. Now, can I ask you, how are you showing your concern for all the other people? What is it that you're doing to love and care for them? Not the people who are your friends. That's really easy, isn't it? Because you'd do that even if you weren't here at church with them because they're your friends. But what about everybody else who you don't put into that category? How are you showing your love and your concern for, for them? That's what Peter's saying, is that we need to actually be ready to all care for each other. Second thing that Peter says is to us is that we need to be ready to face suffering if it does come our way. As I said, I think most Christians in this country know little or nothing of suffering for the sake of the gospel. I'm sure that there are probably a few. But the toughest thing that will happen to us is that people will think that we're strange. I became a Christian after leaving high school and I went to my 10-year high school reunion and I'd been a little bit of a lad when I was at school and when I met the people who were my friends at school and they found out that I'd become a Christian, some of them... Didn't even know what to say and just walked away from the conversation because they weren't sure how to now deal with me because this was all just a bit strange that I'd become a Christian. But if that's the worst suffering that I ever face in my life, then really I, it doesn't even count as suffering, does it? We enjoy freedom, we enjoy religious freedom in this country, and we should thank God for that quite regularly, I'm sure. But I think one of the other reasons is that we that we don't experience much suffering, much suffering is because we don't do what Peter says. See, what he says is, they think it's strange that you don't plunge into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. That dissipation just means excess. That's the word that he's looking for, really. You don't plunge into doing the same things that everybody else does. But maybe we actually avoid suffering by plunging into those things with them so that they won't think that we're strange. Peter said that persecution is going to come because you have different attitudes and values. Well, sadly, Christians don't often stand out from the crowd, do they? They don't have those different values and those different attitudes. We avoid persecution by going with the flow. Well, Peter says you need to be ready to stand out. You need to be ready to face the embarrassment of being different, of having different attitudes and values. And if you find that you're faced with a choice this week, well, there's a clear line to draw in the sand, isn't there? You need to be ready to act like an alien. You need to be ready in a way that's honouring to God, not just going with the flow. But the third thing is this, we need to be ready to tell. We need to be ready to tell others about the hope that we have. I still think it's extraordinary, isn't it? To a group of people who are suffering persecution, he says, get out there and tell people about what it is that you believe. Almost sounds like the opposite of what you'd expect. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do you think you're ready to do that? Imagine you were to walk out of the the church now and, and head up to Darling Street, you're going to have some lunch up there and you bump into someone that you haven't seen for quite some time and they say, so why do you go to church on Sunday morning? What would you tell them? Would you be able to give them the reason for the hope that you have? Do you think that you'd be able to give them a clear, gentle answer about that hope? Would you be able to tell them about the forgiveness that you found in Jesus? Would you be able to tell them about how they can share that same home? You never know how that opportunity is going to come up. You don't know how and when it will happen. Although I can guarantee you almost one thing. I guarantee you no one's going to walk up to you and say, can you give me the reason for the hope that you have? No one's going to ask that question. But the question could come in a variety of other forms. How long have you been going to church? What do you get out of church when you go there on Sunday? So why do you go to Bible study? Do you ever pray to God? What makes you think there is a God? What would you do if you had a million dollars? What helped you cope when your husband died? See, all of those things are opportunities to tell people about the hope that you have, aren't they? All of them are opportunities to tell them about the difference that your Christian life makes to the way that you do things. All of those are opportunities to point people towards Jesus. All of those are questions where people are really asking you for the hope that you have, aren't they? And if you listen carefully, there's actually heaps of opportunities for you to be able to do that. That question comes up probably far more regularly than you'd ever thought. But the question is... Are you ready to give people the reason for the hope that you have? And don't forget, as Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience.